I invite you to have a seat. As you do, uh, I want to introduce myself. My name is Josh McLean. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you are ages three to five, I want to encourage you to make your way to my right, your left, uh, for Hubtown Kids. It's going to be a great time this morning. You won't be in here with us, but soon uh, we'll have ages uh, three to five be joining us. Don't forget, coming up soon, we have Fifth Family Sunday. So on the months that we have a fifth Sunday in that week, we allow, we encourage rather, the children uh, ages three to five to stay in here with us, and we uh, try to help recognize them and, in a sense, tailor the service a little bit in a way that would encourage them and uh, be helpful for them, and not just them, but the entire body together. I want to transition quickly into uh, a bit of an introduction I want to just tell you a little bit of my, my story. I, I loved stories. I loved sagas. I loved Disney movies. Anybody here just a Disney movie fanatic, especially when you're a kid? I've got Carson over here. We've got Micah. Maybe me and Micah were probably watching some similar Disney movies than me and Carson. But, uh, but you know, one of my favorite, Carson, I'm probably going to leave you behind here because you're not going to be able to, f- to follow me, I, I, I imagine. One of my favorite Disney movies was The Sword in the Stone. Does anybody remember that movie? Shake your head. Can I get an amen? It was, a, it was a wonderful story. There in that story, the king of England has died. So for those of you who don't, or you're not aware, and you don't appreciate good classic cartoon movies, uh, the king of England has died. And uh, he leaves no heir to the throne, no heir to be, to be seen or, or known of. And this sword magically appears. It's, it's anchored in this anvil there in London. And it, on, it, on that sword, it has an inscription proclaiming that whoever is able to remove that sword from that stone or from that anvil, he would be the rightful king of England. And of course, story goes that everybody comes to that place and tries to remove the sword all the greats all the strong ones all the ones that you would expect to be the ones that are hey this guy's a prince he's going to be able to do it and he tries and he fails and the time goes on and that sword and that stone is forgotten about and England is ushered into the dark ages there's a connection between that story a similarity between that story and the text that we'll look at this morning in this text that we're looking at, the Sanhedrin, the, the religious council there in Jerusalem, they were unwilling to submit to the authority of Jesus, even though his mighty works confirmed it, that he was the Messiah, and the testimony of John the Baptist declared it, that Jesus is the rightful king of God's kingdom. And even, though he, even after he pulls the sword from the stone, he's not recognized as the rightful king. Look at Mark chapter 11, verses 27 to 33. I want to read that for you this morning. If you'll follow along with your copy of God's word, it should be on the screen for you as well. This is what God's word says. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priest and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it one with another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? 
But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, again, we just come to you admitting that in our own power, our own wisdom and logic, we are unable to understand and rightly divide and therefore apply your word for us this morning. So we submit ourselves to you, recognizing the word matters here. We ask that your spirit would work this text into our minds and into our hearts. We ask that these things be done again in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. I'm going to give you the, uh, the, maybe the main idea for you this morning. Similarly, I've done this many, many times. If you're taking notes, this would be something worth writing down, perhaps. It says this, We must wholly submit to the authority of Jesus. He is the Lord of creation and the Lord of the church. We must wholly submit to the authority of Jesus. He is the Lord of creation and the Lord of the church. Let's work at unpacking this text. There in verse 27, it says, And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priest, the scribes, and the elders came to him. Remember, this is the same week of Jesus arriving there in Jerusalem. As he arrives and he rides or walks up from Jericho there into the outskirts of Jerusalem, he is greeted by a great crowd. He is uh, sat on a donkey and he, the triumphal entry begins. He comes into the temple. You remember how all these things are connecting together. He comes into the, the temple. It's late. He looks around and he walks out. But We caught that subtle hint there like, hey, that was God coming quickly into his temple. He goes out back to Bethany outside of uh, Jerusalem there that night. The next morning he gets up and with with his disciples, he comes back into Jerusalem. He cleanses the temple and then he leaves again. And this has been his week. This is the same exact week. Jesus again wakes up and he comes into Jerusalem, coming into the temple. But on this particular day, He's intercepted by a group of religious leaders while he's coming into the temple. And these men from these respective groups uh, represent what's called the Sanhedrin. They represent the Sanhedrin. And and that name, it comes from the Greek, actually a marriage of two words, of seated and together. So Sanhedrin, uh, that's what I mean. It's the the elders, the, the, uh, the, 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 the Pharisees. And it is the scribes all coming together, and they, re- they are making up this uh, Sanhedrin, this ruling body. What's interesting about that ruling body is that they met every single day except for Sabbath and special holidays. Uh, and they would meet there in the temple. And Jesus, in a sense, has already condemned the temple And remember, it's going to be destroyed in 40 years. Now, scholars argue as to whether or not the Sanhedrin actually fell with the temple. Most say that it did. It at least changed shape and form. But these guys' authority, their position of power there amongst the people of Israel was waning, to say the least. The clock was ticking. Ultimately, though, these men are the men that would have Jesus arrested on false charges. They would have him sent to Pilate for execution following. 
Now, the Sanhedrin had the the blessing of Rome to rule in civil and religious matters, social issues there in that city and in in that area, but they could not exercise capital punishment. No, if they came to the point where they needed to, they believed that somebody needed to die, somebody needed to be executed, they would have to have the authority or the blessing of Rome. And that's why Jesus is handed over by the Sanhedrin to Herod. But we're not there, or Pilate, but we're not there yet. But here we see a fulfillment, further fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy. that He would be executed. He would be handed over, this divine passive. He'd be handed over to the Sanhedrin who would hand him over to Pilate who would have him killed. They wanted Jesus dead. Even for all their desire, they had to walk this fine line between the desires of the great throng of the Jewish crowd and the Roman rulers who looked on, as it were. So they come to Jesus. They're walking that fine line. They hate his guts. They want him dead. And they come to Jesus and they think, let's try to trip him up. Let's try to get there his, uh, his love and, and, and glory there that's been given from the crowd. Let's get that to wane just a little bit. And so they come to him in verse 28, and they said to him, by what authority? They really got him, don't they? I'd love to be, I'd love to watch the Pharisees and just kind of like see in their minds right now. They're probably a little bit giddy. They've met the night before. They know exactly how they're going to trip Jesus up. They're going to get him. He's going to blaspheme like right in front of everybody. They're excited about this. And so they come to him and they say, by what authority are you doing these things? Or, who gave you the authority to do these things? They've stayed up all night in, anticip- in, in, in anticipation. They're ready. Well, here's what we know. They understood this. We understand this. Jesus understood this, that the temple belonged to God. The temple was literally thought of as the house of God. Keep that in mind. When King David, when he had completed his military campaigns there toward the end of his life, he determines in his own heart that he is going to build God, not a temporary home, but uh, instead of this mobile tabernacle, he wants to build God a temple. Now, the story ends with God not allowing David to do so. He, he tells him that his son Solomon will actually build that first temple, that God will actually have a house God blesses that temple. Solomon builds it. God blesses it. And he even lives in it as 1 Kings 6, 13 states. The temple literally was the house of God. Him dwelling with man. And God was the authority in his house. His word ruled in that place. And in some sense, the Sanhedrin recognized that. And that's why they taught it. And that's why they used the word of God to govern in some sense. Now, they've obviously added to, and they've in some sense taken away at this point in time. But they're still generally recognizing the authority of Yahweh. And that was as commonplace as the water that surrounds the fish. That's what they swam in, the authority of God. And so if we're really to understand any of this passage today, we really have to begin here with this point. Number one, it's something that I believe in some way the Sanhedrin recognized, and we have to do as well, that's to recognize God's authority. To recognize God's authority. It's obvious that this ruling team had become 
quite fond, in a sense, of their power that had been derived from speaking and ruling for God as his representative, in some sense as his mouthpiece. But now this guy Jesus shows up. He's got no real formal education, nothing that qualified him, no sponsors within the Sanhedrin that are saying, hey, this guy's legit. They're not vouching for him. And now he has the audacity to walk into the temple, change the practices that have been installed under the rule of the high priest and the Sanhedrin. And then he sits down and teaches in that place like he owns it, which, by the way, he did. But what's happening is they've become accustomed to the power that's associated with their position. And in some sense, they've begun, begun, begun to, to, to feel as if they've taken the place of God. And by the way, ruling in the place of God must be intoxicating. We can look throughout history, even in our common day, we can see certain people, leaders, when they come into power, when they think themselves in the place of God, how intoxicating, how, how that can cause them to even act just drunk with pride, drunk with their own self-love. Difficult to lay those things down once they've picked them up. A great fear of the people of the United States even in recent years and days. Deep down, these leaders, they know what they are doing. Likely, they know it. But then they see this other man threatening all of that. And if he isn't stopped, really, he could undo all the power that they have. He could undo all the authority that they have. He could really take away the wealth that they've obtained through their oppression there, even in the temple. And so under the guise of recognition that the temple is the Lord's, they question Jesus about what he is doing. They question him. Hey, this is Yahweh's house. This is, this is under the authority of God. And so how can you, untrained, unlearned rabbi, so-called, come into this place and change everything? They come and they question him. As if they're doing God a favor. These freeloading power abusers see Jesus as a threat, and so they pretend to do God a favor by addressing this rabble rouser. Whose authority are you operating under? Who said you could act this way and do these things? Really, again, they're trying to, to demonstrate that Jesus has no official priestly role in their mind. He has no scribal authority. He has no place here. He's acting like he owns the place. So again, on one level, they recognize the authority of God. But they also see themselves as his representatives, and so a feud is going to ensue. They see themselves as in the place of God. And by the way, I think this is a helpful place just to park for a minute. So often we do that. One of the most vivid things that I can point to that God just worked into my heart and grew me in 2019 was when we worked through the story of Pharaoh. We saw how Pharaoh, in this place of authority and even of care and protection for the people there and the citizens of Egypt, and, and by extension, the children of Israel, how he takes that authority, he takes that power, and he uses it for his own glory. He uses it for his, his own desires and, and personal lusts. Instead of bringing, using his authority to bring the people of Israel and even the Egyptians to a place of thriving, what does he do? He uses it, he pours out their lives on his own altar. 
And at the very end of their time there in Egypt, instead of giving them more resources and, and less, uh, less uh, work time and more rest, he flips it, gives them less resources and demands more work from them. And in contrast, when they exit Egypt, there at the base of the mountain, they receive what? The Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. And what does God say? Hey, you're used to working every day and not getting any resources and being wrung out on the altar of this false god, Pharaoh. And in contrast to that, I want you to take a day and I just want you to worship me. And you're not going to do any work. I just want you to worship me and rest. You know, so often I, I feel like that's a temptation in my own life to take the power to take the responsibilities that God has given to me, the authority that he has bestowed on me and, in order to care for the people under me in some sense. And I use it for my own glory. Maybe you could admit the same. Whether it be in your job, maybe it be in your marriage, in your family, the opportunity, the authority that God has given to you, husband, to bring about flourishing in your own home. Do you then take that and consume it on your own lusts? That's what the Sanhedrin is doing. In some sense, they've been given authority by God to care for the people, and in some sense, to shepherd the people, although Jesus says they're without a shepherd. It's a place of robbers. Nobody's protecting them. It's a den of wolves. But maybe that's true of us in some way as well. At any rate, they want to know at what, by what authority Jesus is doing the things that he's doing. What things are they talking about? Well, it really includes more than just Jesus' entry into Jerusalem there, the triumphal entry. It's, it's more than his cleansing of the temple. It actually extends to the, to the miracles that he's been performing and the teaching that he's been giving there in the temple. The way that he teaches there, it says that he teaches with authority throughout the Gospels. He taught as one with authority. The fact that he taught at all, they were confused as to why he would do these things. And what's interesting to me is they ask him about where he gets his authority, and I think it's an ironic question. Think about this. By, by whose authority do you teach in such a profound and powerful way like nobody else? Or maybe this is what they're thinking. Who gave you the power to raise the dead and give sight to the blind? Who gave that to you? Almost as if they're saying, how dare you? Ignoring the obvious that it's by God alone. What about this? What gives you the right to fulfill the messianic prophecies? You, think, you, hear, you hear the irony there, right? It's like, Whoever removes the sword from the stone, it's written on the sword. Whoever pulls the sword from the stone, that person is king. Like, by definition, it, that sword in their hand, it attests to them being the right one. And they have the right, they have the authority and the power to become the king. They are the king. Maybe for you modern listeners, it's, it's like asking, who can wield Mjolnir, Thor's hammer? Who can do that? Well, the, the person that can wield it can wield it, Right? It's self-attesting. And so in a sense, it can be difficult for us to sympathize with these guys from our vantage point. The answer to their question, it, it's so clear to us, right? But there's a part of the equation that we have to be careful to notice as we look at their lives. Maybe it's a helpful mirror for us to kind of see as a commentary of our own, and that is the deceitfulness of the human heart. 
And so all of us here, with the exception maybe of just a few, but I would imagine all of us would say, yes, ultimate authority is God's. He is the creator, and he's the head of the church. Yes, of course. But when it comes down to actually living in light of that, we have to beware of the human heart, the deceitfulness of the human heart. And so recognize God's authority, yes, but also beware of the human heart. We see this great example here. These men come to Jesus. They're asking really good questions. They really are. But I'm sure that you've noticed something. They didn't really want to know the answer to those questions, did they? Did they really want to know where Jesus got his authority at? Listen, if anybody here should know where Jesus got his authority, it's those guys. Especially them together. They should know. But here's what we see. Their minds, when they come to Jesus, are already made up about him. The Sanhedrin is not approaching Jesus regarding this issue from a logical perspective. They're not saying, okay, well, he did this, 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 and this. That means two plus two plus two is six. No, they're coming to a different conclusion. Why? There's, they've added something else in there. And it's been added in by the deceitfulness of their own hearts, by the human condition You see, they will do whatever they must to obtain whatever they want. They'll even take Jesus' life if they must. They'll never submit to his authority. They would never submit to God's authority. This passage clearly illustrates what's called the doctrine of total depravity. What what does that mean? Well, it's a great great case study. You can see it. it. You're saying, how could they miss it? It's so obvious that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the rightful king, and that they need to submit to him. Well, the doctrine of total depravity, it it informs us that as a result of the fall of man through the sin of Adam, that every part of man, his mind, his will, his emotions, even his flesh, they've all been corrupted. They've all been broken by sin. In every way, it's infiltrated us to the very core of our being. Everything is spoiled by sin. Every single one of us, oldest to the youngest, every descendant of Adam. What does that mean? Well, as it comes to the mind, man is unable to reason toward God. On your own, of your own volition, with your own power, you are unable to reason toward God. When it comes to the the hand or the ability that you have within you, you are unable in and of yourself to please God. This is total depravity. When it comes to the heart or desire, man does what he wants. And what he wants is to not please God in and of himself. They're unable to do anything else. We can see that in this text. We can see that in these rulers. The Bible teaches that man is dead in his sin, unable to think, unable to act, unable to even desire something other than his own sin and rebellion. Let me ask you this this morning. We see that in the text, but do you see that in your own life? Do you see that in your own life? How many times has your sinful heart come to its own conclusion and then determined its own desired end 
and then worked it out to where that would be justified in some sense. Maybe even within the context of the local church, within the context of marriage, within the context of your family, maybe even your work. You know something. Maybe it's even against the, the will of God and you still use everything in your power to bring it about to where you can access that. I've seen it so often in my own heart. And sadly, I've seen it so often in the counseling room. That man, in and of his own work, because of the sin that infiltrates every part of his life, he's unable to please God. Hold that in your mind. I don't give you that to bring us to this place of condemnation, but to really understand the context of what's taking place here. So God is in authority. We have to recognize that. And we may think we're recognizing that, but we also have to be aware of our own sinful heart. And that sort of anthropology, that, that teaching on man is really from the book. It's divine. We don't get that kind of teaching from Disney, do we? What does Disney teach about the heart of man? Or the heart of every little princess? Well, it's good. And it should follow its heart. And yet we see here that when we follow our hearts, what ends up happening? We go against the very thing that God has given to us. We challenge God's commands for us. I want you to notice that Satan tempted Adam, our father, in this very way. He, he tempted him. He caused him in some sense to question or even disregard the clear words of God. And in a way, the God of this world blinded the eyes of Adam. And even today, he blinds the eyes of those living in the world today. And he would blind the eyes, if it were possible, of even the elect. So we have to be careful. We have to be careful. Before we move on, I want to just make a, a few comments, too, really, about this. Them asking questions of Jesus and his authority. First, it's this. It, it's not wrong to ask questions. It's not wrong to ask questions. This is a great question. Whose authority is Jesus operating in? Where did he get the authority to do that? That's a great question to ask. We're going to get to that as we move forward, where Jesus got that authority at. Just recognize this. We're able to ask questions, but make sure that when we ask the question, we're actually listening. That we're actually listening. Now, I've been accused of, maybe you have too, of taking God's word too seriously. Isn't that a great thing to be accused of, by the way? I wish that our church, and I believe that it is, accused of taking God's word too seriously. I think that's exactly what Satan was saying in the garden. You take God's word too seriously. We can ask questions about what God means, what he, what he thinks, why this is true of that, why this is happening here. We can even be suspended in these paradoxes of trying to understand how these two things or those two things can actually work together. We can ask questions, but at the end of the day, we have to, in humility, listen to God and take his word seriously. And so ask questions, learn, search the scriptures even. But another thing I would warn about looking at this text here is to look out for idols. Look out for heart idols. We can see that from the, the life of these Pharisees, the, 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 the collective di direction that they're heading. 
by asking yourself this question, is there something that would cause you to stray from the path that God has you on? Is there something that would cause you to wander off the path? When we wander off the path, the thing that we're going after, that right there, my friends, is a heart idol. You might say this morning, God, who gives you the right to tell me how to live my life? Maybe you've heard that before. Maybe you've even sensed that in your own heart. Maybe you say things like, what makes you think that you could tell me how to spend my money, how to spend my time, how to raise my kids, how to manage my hobbies, how to do all of these things? Who are you to tell me who I should associate with in a meaningful way and who I shouldn't? How can you be telling me, God, how far I can go in my physical relationships? How can you be thinking you could speak into how much I can drink? Where do you get that authority at? When we begin to ask that question, it's revealing heart idols in our lives. For the Sanhedrin, for these questioning Jesus, they're asking Jesus about authority. Where do you get your authority? And that's their problem. That's their heart idol. They, in a sense, are in authority there in Jerusalem. And Jesus is calling that into question. He's there to clean house. And they don't like it. And so what do we see arising? Well, we see them as they veer off the path that God has for them. We, we see revealed in their lives a heart idol. I would ask you this morning to consider your own life, to consider your own heart. Are there heart idols in your life? By the way, some of us are in a sense of the word, naturally inclined to go a certain degree on the path that God would have us to go on. Maybe we just, God doesn't want us to steal. We don't like people stealing from us. That's just one of our pet peeves. And so we will go so far as to say, hey, this is, this is naturally what I'll do. But when God commands us to go a little farther, to be a little bit more above reproach, to call the other areas of life, of sin in our lives, sin, we stall sometimes. Does God have the authority to, to demand more of us? I would ask you. The answer to that is yes. And by definition, rebellion is acting against the commands of those over you. And that's true regardless of your motives. You see, the Sanhedrin may not even have been aware of their own heart idols. They may not have been aware of what was happening in their, in their hearts And yet at the same time, they're rebelling against God. They're rebelling against His Word. And so regardless of motives, it's still rebellion. It's still idolatry. They'd come to Jesus. They'd come to God with a list of predetermined conclusions for their life. That's what they're doing. We're not open to the authority of God in in our lives and not in this place, not in Jerusalem, and not in His house, not in the temple. We've always done things this way. And I'm not going to give up my lofty place in the temple in order to follow John's baptism. Do you remember that? Do you remember back to when we started the Gospel of Mark? John is preaching this message and what's happening. Everybody, it says, great crowds coming from Jerusalem, descending down to the Jordan. And what are they doing? They're being baptized there. They're demonstrating an incredible amount of humility as they say, yes, we are physical sons of Abraham, but that's not enough to be counted righteous. We need to repent. We're going to humble ourselves. We're going to be washed in this river right here and thereby enter through this message of repentance into the kingdom of God. Well, 
It's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 3 that the Sanhedrin assembles there. But what, what are they there for? Not to be baptized. They're not there to humble themselves. They're not there to confess sin. They're not there to be washed in any sense of the word. They're not having that. They've come to Jesus. They've come to God with some other idea for their life. I ask you this morning, how is that any different than coming to God, but at the same time not submitting to what he says about food? How is that any different? How how is it any different than, than coming to God and not submitting to what he says about human sexuality? How is that any different? Or coming to him in a sense, but not agreeing with what he says about gender or what he says about gathering and committing yourself to the local church. Is it any different? Christian, especially, you've been bought with a price. Your life is now his life. So you need to serve your king. Submit to your king. Submit to God in every area of your life. Submit it to the authority of Christ in his clear word. In a concrete sense, God counters the depravity of our hearts in a practical way by calling us out of the world into a gospel community into the local church one of the ways that we can truly see him working in our lives is in the context of the local church authentic relationships in the church obeying the one and others of scripture within the context of the local church submitting ourselves to god So in light of the authority of God, recognizing that in our lives and being being aware of our own sinfulness in the church, even what do we do? Well, we give one of the ways that we say or embrace God's kindness to us in the local church is we ask good questions of one another. We ask good heart questions about one another. The Bible says that the the heart of a man is, is deep, but a man of understanding, what will he do? He'll draw it out. They'll ask good questions. Church, one of the ways that we can submit ourselves to the authority of God and beware of the human heart is to ask good questions of one another. And by the way, this is for free. Do people ask good questions of you? Ask yourself that. Do people ever ask you good heart questions? Maybe you say, nobody ever asked me any good heart questions. That's a, that's a way that they can demonstrate love, brother, sister. You can demonstrate love to the person next to you by asking good questions. Maybe you say, well, maybe nobody loves me because they're not asking me good heart questions. That might be true, but maybe it's also that you've not given them permission to ask you good questions. Maybe they don't think you'll be receptive. Maybe your disposition and your demeanor within the context of the local church is uninviting as it relates to really opening up, really being sincere, really being honest, and allowing people to to help to see and draw out heart idols in your life. If we're going to submit to the, uh, the authority of God, we have to beware of our human heart. And one of the ways practically that God helps us to fight that is in the community and context of the local church. At any rate, I want to move on. These guys are thinking what? They, they're thinking that they have Jesus right where they want him, right? Try, try to just imagine in their minds, they're like, hey, we really got him here. We really got him. But one doesn't just get the best of Jesus, right? It doesn't happen. There's no getting a jump on him. He's 
literally 20,000 moves ahead. The game's over before it even begins. And even just the way that Jesus responds to their question really flexes and shows his authority. Look at verse 29. Jesus says to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. That's just, that's a flex right there, by the way. They ask him a question, and he's like, I'm not going to answer your question. I'm going to ask you a question, okay? And I want, and by the way, that's, he, he, he does this in an imperative. Answer me. You have to answer me. And it's funny, because they try to answer him. But his question is, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Maybe you remember John the Baptist. We've spent quite a bit of time talking about him in our Gospel of Mark study. John had led an incredible ministry. Thousands had come to him at the River Jordan. They had come to be baptized. They had received his message. And the the throngs of people that were even present there in Jerusalem on this day, they really believed, they held John to be a great prophet. Many of them even believed that John was the forerunner to the Messiah. And at this point, yes, John's been arrested And he's even been beheaded by Herod. He wanted to decrease so that the Messiah could increase. And Jesus brings up John really for two reasons. One, and this is the lesser, but I'll give it first. It's to draw a parallel. And the second is to demonstrate a connection. First, Jesus is drawing a parallel between himself and John. Both Jesus and John, they did ministry. uh, And it was effective, particularly here, the, the, the parallel is in Jerusalem. John drew the attention of the insecure Sanhedrin, and so did Jesus. Both were, con- were considered by the people to be great modern-day prophets, if not more. And of course, Jesus uh, held that he and John had been given legitimate authority by God, confirmed via ancient prophecy to do what they did. And so there's a parallel between these two. But there's also a, c- a clear connection between the two, John and Jesus. Jesus brings uh, John up more than just demonstrate this parallel. It's to point out that John believed himself to be the forerunner prophesied in Malachi chapter 3. And John himself authenticates Jesus as the Messiah coming into the temple. Do you remember Malachi chapter 3? John the Baptist believed himself. Part of his message was to declare that Jesus was the Messiah, and he does so publicly. It's worth looking back at Mark chapter 1. If you have your Bible, I I encourage you to turn back there. Mark chapter 1. I want to read it for you. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. You see here, this was an ancient prophecy. One, that the Messiah would come. And two, that there would be a forerunner who would prepare the people to receive the Messiah. John references that. John believes that. And Mark, as he writes his gospel, starts out with that foundation. Verse 4, it follows, which is a, it's there to demonstrate that it's believed by Mark to be a fulfillment of that very thing. Verse 4 says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. John was that messenger, Mark is telling us. This is 
Clear for his Roman audience, it's clear for his Gentile audience today here in Hagerstown. John's the messenger, he came before. Now look at what this messenger has come to say. Verse 7, chapter 1. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John is clearly saying, you know the testimony, you know the, pro- the Old Testament prophecies. There's one coming mightier than I after me. I am his messenger. I am his forerunner. The Messiah is coming. In fact, the Messiah is here. Look at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water at John's baptism of Jesus, Immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. John had completed his task in that moment of preparing the way for the Messiah. He was the forerunner. His job was done. And so now the Sanhedrin is in a pickle. It's a kosher pickle, but they're in it nonetheless. Look at verse 31. And they discussed it one with another, saying, If we say from heaven, Jesus has only given us two options. He's either from heaven or he's from man, not from heaven, not from God. If we say he's from heaven, he will say, Jesus, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people. For all the people held that John really was a prophet. By the way, to to be a prophet, to be one who speaks for God in this sense, is to not be, by definition, a false prophet. So the people believed that he was a prophet, a true prophet. Jesus says, in line with that day, is he from heaven or is he from God? Heaven is simply a, a reverential synonym for the name of God. And so instead of saying God... Jesus says, as the the Jews would prefer, is he from heaven or is he from man? Has God sent him or was he sent by man? And so you see their predicament, don't you? Really, really wrestle to see this if you don't. They they didn't want to say that they believe that John was from God since because if they did say that, then they're basically saying, yeah, you win, Jesus, because he was a true prophet and he believed you were the Messiah. And so we can't say that. We, we can't say he's from heaven. And if the only other option is man, and we say man, what will the people think? What will the people think? There will be a rebellion for sure. They'll lose all credibility there in Jerusalem. They will lose their power. They're afraid of the people. And by the way, can we, can we agree that those men are disqualified as leaders because of that? How, who, who wants a leader that is afraid of the people? I'm not trying to make this political, But in every area of our lives, we don't want leaders who are afraid to lead. We don't want leaders who are afraid to say the true and right thing. And so in our churches, in our cities, in our homes, we want leaders who will say the the true and right thing in love, but from the word of God. They're afraid of the people. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 24 says that the fear of man brings a snare. And these dudes were definitely operating in fear of man and thereby unfit to lead God's people. 
It's beautiful, by the way, in contrast. I love the word that, that Mark uses to talk about Jesus walking around. But Jesus is walking into the temple. Do you remember what we talked about a couple weeks ago? Like Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem saying, hey, I'm going to be handed over to these uh, religious leaders and they're going to have me killed. And he's just like walking. And they're like, what, what is he, what's he doing? This is incredible. Contrast Jesus walking into the temple after he's just cleansed the temple, after he's just taken a stick to the hornet's nest. He just walks in. And they're, they're so afraid in contrast to even say something that's obvious and true that everybody else can see. And yet they're denying. I want you to also notice they're conniving. Here's a novel idea if you're a leader, if you're just a human being. Tell the truth, right? They're like, well, we can't say that because this will happen. And we can't say that because this will happen. So let's just not say anything or let's make up some kind of a lie. Why wouldn't they just tell the truth? That's a, that's a good question. But it goes back to uh, recognizing your own sinful heart or being aware of that. But they had, in fact, asked Jesus a great question, as I had shared a moment ago. I want you to imagine the surrounding pilgrims as they begin to stroke their chins and wait for Jesus to answer that question. And then Jesus comes out with, not playing their game, but comes right out with, hey, another question. If they're qualified to answer the question that Jesus answered or gave to them, then they surely would be able to be qualified to to refute Jesus' authority. And yet they plead the fifth which doesn't exist at that moment. But they resigned to answer. We're not going to do it. And what do they end up doing? Well, they, in a sense, inadvertently, they've lost the game. They realize it and they give up. You ever play chess with your kids and they just give up, right? No mercy. And they're just like, please let me go away. Please let me stop. You're like, no, we're going to finish this game, right? That's kind of maybe what happens here. Jesus is like, boom, 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 boom. Checkmate. 20 moves out, they know what's happening and they're saying, ah, we're not going to answer the question and they walk away. Look at verse 33. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The irony is here, he's just given them his authority. Notice what he does. I mentioned a moment ago that he's flexing in this passage, not in some prideful way, but notice he doesn't answer their question initially. He turns the table and starts asking the questions, right? We will ask the questions, uh, not you. He demands an answer from them. He stumps them and then explicitly, clearly denies that he's ever going to answer that question and they walk away. What we see here is yet another example of the authority of Jesus. And the authority, really, it, it speak, that word authority that they're using, that Jesus even uses, it speaks to the right and the power to do a thing. It has this idea of jurisdiction, the right to do something, the position to do something, and the actual power to do something. I, w- I want you to think about the distinction between those two things um, very clearly. I'm going to give you a word picture. How many of you have ever had a supervisor that you were like, hey, that person has got the position to be supervising, but they don't have the power to be supervising? Great person. Maybe you love them to death, but you're like, yeah, they've been given that job but they're not able to actually do it. Maybe you've been like me and you're like, hey, I've been in those situations. I've been given a job that I can't do, right? Well, what about vice versa? Have you ever known somebody that had the power to do something, but they didn't have the authority, they didn't have the position to do that thing? Well, neither one of those scenarios are true of Jesus. He has the authority, as in he has the 
position. He has the place and he has the power to do these things. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus speaking to his disciples right before his ascension, right before the, right there at the Great Commission, he says to them, all power, all authority, what? Has been given to what? Has been given to who? He says, it's all been given to me. All authority both in heaven and on earth. And he follows that up with a command to go into all the world. All authority has been given to Jesus. It's all been given to Jesus. And so our third point this morning is this, that we are to submit to Jesus as Lord of all. All authority. What is this passage getting at? What does this demonstrate for us? Well, we, yes, we have to recognize God's authority. And yes, we have to be aware of our own lives, but ultimately, our own hearts. But ultimately, and finally, we have to submit to Jesus as Lord of all. And I love how the Bible is so clear that he is Lord of creation. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 uh, through 18. For by him all things were created, speaking of Jesus, in heaven and on earth, visible and, in, and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I love that. How, how, how more clear could it be as they question, whose authority do you have? They're speaking to the one that at that very moment is holding all things together, even the, the, the molecules that comprise their bodies, the cells, glued together in that moment, in some sense, by Jesus. What's more, verse 18 of Colossians chapter 1, it says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, that everything would be about him, about his glory, about his rule, about his authority. He has full authority here in creation. To us, his creatures, he commands us by his authority, by his position, through his jurisdiction, he commands us to what? To repent. And to turn from our sinful ways and to walk in his commands. And so that goes out to every one of us today. That we repent. But not only is he the Lord of creation, he is also the Lord of the church. He is the head of the church. Colossians testifies to that and so does Ephesians. Chapter 1, verse 22. And he put all things under his feet, speaking of God the Father, toward Christ the Son. And gave him as head over all things to the church. Furthermore, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and, he, and, 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 is, him, it's, and is himself its savior. Again, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, we've already read that he is the head of the church, he's the head of the body. So I'd ask you this morning, what does it mean? For us, to pra- for us practically that Christ is the head, the Lord of the church. What does that mean? What does that look like? And it is a hypothetical question, or it is a rhetorical question, I should say, not a hypothetical. What should that look like in your life? What should that look like in our church? We could speak about that in specific ways. And I think that would be a a helpful thing for you to share with your D group and with your life group, maybe even today or throughout the week as you meet. 
But generally speaking, here's what I think it should look like. Here's what the Word of God would teach us. That it would be a joyful, it would look like a joyful submission to Christ as King in our lives. A joyful submission to Christ as King. Two of the values that we say, the distinctives of our church. One, we say that it's all about Jesus. That everything is about Jesus. And we have in mind Colossians chapter 1. Furthermore, we say the word matters here. Whose word? Christ's word. His commands for us, they matter here so dearly. And so we hold each other accountable to them. We encourage one another with them. We are fed by them. We're directed by them. It means that we guard our focus and we keep it on Christ alone. Guided by his word alone. As we come to a close, I want to admit that there is an allure to the position of authority in the hearts of every one of us. There's an allure to obtain authority. And really, we know, though, it should only be obtained. It should only be held by those who are able, by those who are worthy. Ultimately, it should only be held by Christ alone. We see that the Sanhedrin was unworthy to hold ultimate authority and sway there in Jerusalem. The same is true of the church. Pastors, church members, deacon boards, founding charter members, all of these, none of them should hold the ultimate authority. Who holds the authority in the church? Christ alone. Even the New Testament clearly teaches that the elders, the pastors within the church are under shepherds. They don't lord their responsibilities and their, and their authority over the church, but in glad submission to Christ, he, they care for the church. If you follow the arc of history, from creation to the fall, to redemption and finally restoration, I ask you this question. When, the, when mankind fell into sin, and the prophecy was given that one would come and crush the head as a king, a future king, he would crush the head of Satan. He would crush the head of, of, of evil. He would deliver God's people in the future. You say, man, that sounds great. I'd love to be that king. Or this person I have in mind, this political leader, or this person over here, I'd love for them to be that person. And at the end of the day, we have to recognize that that authority, that power to bring us from the fall through redemption and finally into restoration back into the garden, that ability is only, that power, that position is only for Christ. And just as Arthur pulled the stone from the, or the sword from the stone, he secured his rightful place as the king of England, so Jesus takes his rightful place as the Lord of creation and as the head of the church as he fulfills the, all of the messianic prophecies. And finally, as an inaugural event, he doesn't destroy his enemies, but he dies for them. He lays his life down for them. And he resurrects and he ascends to the Father. Jesus has the authority to cleanse the temple. He has the authority to teach the people. But he also has the authority to forgive sins. He has the authority to cleanse hearts. Authority has been given to him. 
And he has sent us out into the world as his ambassadors, as we talked about this morning during the equipping hour. He wants us to go into the world and to share his message of reconciliation, that the one who knew no sin, who had no sin, took on the sins of his people, of all those who would turn from their sin and place their faith in Jesus, and then they could become the righteousness of God in him. Finally, he would put all things under his feet, and he would bring us back into the garden he would bring us back into his kingdom that's king jesus and so church this morning consider this we must wholly submit to the authority of jesus he is a good king he is leading us into the garden and he will be our god for all eternity he is the lord of creation and he is the lord of the church i want to invite you to bow your heads Close your eyes. Take a moment just to reflect on our time this morning. I just want to ask one question. Is there an area in your life that the Spirit of God is drawing attention to in your life where Jesus is not king? Is there an area? Ask the Spirit of God to reveal that to you. Ask in faith. And when he does, I challenge you, get your phone out, text your life group leader, text your D group. I got something I want to share. Write it down in your journal. You, this is something, this is an Ebenezer moment. You're going to crown Jesus, in a sense, king of that area of your life. You're going to submit it to his, to his rule and authority in your life. I want to ask something else, though. Is there an area in your life where you feel that God, where Jesus, ruling as king, is not kind or maybe he's not trustworthy maybe it's your future maybe it's your career the fact that you're married the fact that you're not married maybe it has something to do with your gender or your sexuality is there an area in your life where you say i, I just don't know if i can trust the kindness of god the kindness of christ to really submit that area of my life, my finances, my time, to King Jesus. Again, I would encourage you, pull out a pen, write that down. Text your life group leader, text your D group leader. Make a point to share that with your church, with your brothers and sisters, so they can walk with you and hold you accountable. Jesus, we thank you this morning that you are kind and you are gracious. And you have the rightful position of authority in our lives, both in the church and in over all creation. And so we submit to you joyfully this morning, trusting that you are bringing us back into the garden. You are restoring all things to be where they should be. Peace and shalom are found in your kingdom. And so cause us to trust you. Help us to see the idols in our hearts. And as a community, would we draw those by the power of your word and your spirit which lives within us to draw those into light, to confess them, and in humility submit to your authority, Christ. We ask that these things be done in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen.